Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Boldashino, and this is episode 44 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Pete Stansky. Two episodes in two weeks, Pete. How is this happening? And more importantly, how are you doing? I'm going pretty good, all things considered. Um, you guys probably can't see me, obviously, it's a podcast, but uh, I have been a little pale over the last few days. Uh, I've probably had the worst um, flu in the last 10 years. So uh, um, I'm okay now, Shane, but uh, you know, we, we're here for the show for our listeners. Um, so there's a lot of good, awesome things we're going to cover today. Um, so how about we kick, kick out the show? Yeah, I think maybe we're working you too hard here, Pete. Maybe, but uh, you know, I'm a bit of a workaholic, and um, I do have a lot of fun. I love my job, as um, as you know, um, and playing with tech is uh, such a exciting thing to do every single day. Good one. All right. So today's show is going to be a themed affair, and there's no doubt that technology has democratized things and you know really made life easier. I often reminisce of the days when technology wasn't plug and play, and when I do at home, my kids, you know, they just don't care these days. So. A lot of our listeners may be already using AWS, you may be a developer or so on. But what does it really take to get started on AWS? You know, you may be at a barbecue and speaking to someone with a great idea that just doesn't know where to start. Well, in this episode today, it's going to be part one of a two-part series focusing more on the how to get started in AWS. And Shane, and in fact, this is actually what happened to me a little, little while ago um, when uh, at a barbecue, somebody actually asked me, I've just started a whole new business and uh, you know, what could I do on AWS? So we're going to kind of maybe answer some of those questions for people like yourselves who are in a similar situation or your friends or friends at a barbecue. Mm, maybe they're listening. So we're going to pass the usual cool announcements like Kinesis Agent for Windows. I just saw that recently and I thought that was awesome. It is. So we'll park that. Yep. And uh, other announcements for future episodes. And today we are going to talk everything from domain registration through to website traffic analysis and everything in between. And before we do that, let's have a quick lap of news and events. So summits are well and truly here. We, it's almost a weekly affair at the moment. There are some great picks on social media on the usual AWS channels, and it's always good to see how customers are using our services. Many of the stories from LinkedIn to Instagram talk about the amazing customer outcomes you know, customers are experiencing. And in a way, it's really quite humbling. It really is, Shane, because I've been following that a lot. And uh, you know, our buddies are all across uh, the globe are having some really awesome time with customers at the events. And I've seen lots of uh, interesting, um, even our customers posting, getting ready for the summits because uh, uh, Deep Racer League is a, a, a talk of the town at the moment. Um, and I saw a whole bunch of folks uh, posting on LinkedIn about how they were getting ready. So uh, super exciting to see that level of engagement. Yeah, actually seen them as well and very, very cool. So it's our turn next because Sydney Summit Yay. spread over three days. Yeah, from the 30th of April to the 2nd of May. So we'd love to see uh, any listeners come and say hi. Um, we're also out and about, or well, not us personally, on London in the 8th of May and Mumbai on the 15th of May. So Pete, as I mentioned, Sydney, it's fast approaching. It's that huge elephant in the distance. Well, it was, and now it's becoming very real and large. 
I just checked a few days ago and I have a heap of homework to do. Hey, you and me together, buddy. I mean, there's been so many things happening behind the scenes. Uh, and I'm actually the, uh, the content director on the Sydney Summit. So uh, um, I've had to employ a whole bunch of other Amazonians to help me. Um, there is so much cool stuff that we've actually been working on. Um, you guys are absolutely going to love it. If you're going to be at the Sydney Summit, please don't miss it. Um, go and participate in as many things as possible. We've got workshops. We've got the Deep Reblacer. We're going to have a whole bunch of really interesting speakers, uh, both locally and internationally. And also, we're going to have customers on stage uh, talking about how they're using technology and the AWS stack to uh, improve um, what they do and uh, improve um, the well-being of their own customers as well. So super excited about so many different stories that are going to be coming out from the summit. Yeah. And look, as mentioned, we will be on AWS Summit Live in Sydney over three days on Twitch, broadcasting everything Sydney Summit has to offer. So between us, the rest of the Tech Chat gang will be streaming on Twitch for almost the entire three days, interviewing special guests, customers, providing commentary, and some awesome dad jokes. We're going to be pretty tired. And by the way, speaking of dad jokes, I had, a, I had somebody, um, one of our listeners uh, approach me and said, he actually likes your dad joke, Shane. So uh, you're ticking the box for, for a few people out there. It's awesome. Awesome. You know what? I actually got some comments about the do's and don'ts underwear book the other day. So <laughs> thank you, listeners. So look, even if you can't be there, being on Twitch, it'd be a great way to hear from a tech chat audience. Ask us a question. You know, we've got a team of moderators and be sure to tell them that you're a listener. Yes, and look, tell us if you want us to do something crazy even on stage. Um, we're going to try to make it as interactive as possible. Um, the plan is to even stream the keynotes and things like that. So uh, if you cannot physically get to Sydney, um, whether you're overseas or in another city and uh, your budget doesn't stretch, stretch that far, uh, if you can invest in uh, watching Twitch, um, we will see you there. And like we did last year, we're going to have Tech Chat TV. We're going to have uh, many of the streams actually put online um, like we did last year to make sure that you actually you know, don't miss anything of interest. Good one. All right, Pete, on the updates front, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening in the world of AWS? Sure. So um, we have freshly announced uh, a region in Indonesia, in Jakarta to be more specific. And the new region will be um, based in greater Jakarta area and will be compromised of, as, as expected, three availability zones. Now, this goes without saying that the new region will also be open to all of our existing customers, like any other region. Um, so if you'd like to, you know, get access and, uh, you know, store data and compute, uh, you can do that in Indonesia. So if you have customers that are in Indonesia, of course, this is going to reduce latency. Um, and we're also working to uh, help prepare developers in Indonesia for a digital future. So with programs like AWS Educate and AWS Activate, um, dozens of universities and business schools across Indonesia have um, already started to participate in their educational programs. So, and there's a whole plethora of startups and also accelerators that we've been actually working with um, to help um, the local developer ecosystem um, and the startup ecosystem actually kick off by using um, the newly to be opened uh, um, region when it's actually up and available. Good one. All right. So there is no ETA on the launch of Indonesia as yet, but keep your ears tuned to Tech Chat as we'll be sure to share additional news about this and other upcoming AWS regions as they're announced. Yes, but you know what? I was talking to somebody uh, a few years ago, and um, they surprised me, Shane, when they said, uh, I know you're going to open a region somewhere. And I went, how do you know that? Now, back in back many, many years ago, we didn't actually pre-announce the regions sometimes. Um, 
And uh, what they used to do is they actually used to do DNS to actually do uh, DNS any um, lookups, and uh, that would actually you know dump a whole bunch of uh, subdomains, um, and that's how some people used to try to um, extract information about what's available. So yes, not most DNS servers don't support that these days because actually uh, it can also be an amplification attack for DNS servers. Um, but that's how some people can actually learn some really interesting things about what's out there in the interwebs. Mm, so speaking of DNS, let's on with the show here. So I think perfect segue here, Pete. So you've thought of a new business idea. Check. Done. And maybe even if it's a B2B or using like an archaic communications protocol, like I've had to deal in the past with like MQ or EDI, odds are you're still going to need a website. And according to RFC 1034 and 1035, which relate to domain names, their standards and how to implement domains, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to need to register a domain name. And we have a service that can help you out with that, and that is Amazon Route 53. So Route 53, as we know, and the name implies, is our DNS offering. It does this job really well, but it expands on standard DNS functionality. And one of the functions that many people may not be aware of in Amazon Route 53 is the fact that we are a domain registrar. Now, a domain name registrar provides domain name registration to the general public, so you and I. I think a common misconception is that registrars sell domain names. These domain names are actually owned by the registries and they can only be leased by the users. Yes, indeed. So this is kind of like uh, buying virtual goods. Actually, I'm not a big fan of uh, my kids buying virtual goods and uh, I'm pretty sure they single-handedly have uh, kept uh, you know, Fortnite in business by buying uh, different skins. Um, but in a professional context, think about it as um, a domain um, name is really your, your, your license plate. It's a customized um, mapping from a name to an IP address with a whole bunch of magic in between. But um, the registrars actually uh, hold a very important role because they are the custodians um, of the actual domains that you actually lease from them. Yeah. And look, I think we're only five minutes into the show and maybe I'm segueing here for story, but rewind the clock back to my hosting days and I don't think a day would go past without a support ticket being raised of my website's down with the root cause being, you know, their domain name has expired. So do yourself a favor, you know, when you do receive those emails from or notifications from your domain name registrar, take notice because you know once your domain name lapses things from email to website everything that requires or revolves around dns isn't going to work and if you let it lapse for too long it'll be up for grabs for re-registration by someone else so typically that hold period is about two weeks post domain name registration over Yes, and look, so, I've, I've, I've lost domains that way as well you know go on a holiday forget to renew things you didn't have the auto renew ticked and presto, you just lost the domain and then you can't get it back. So yes, mm. happens to all of us. Come on, Pete. I don't know about that. Oh, look, all it's right. probably ever been two, so it wasn't that bad. All righty. <laughs> so look, story time over. Pete, I've registered my domain name. Now what? And before I pass the mic over, this is a typical interview question I often ask prospective Amazonians. So please don't let me down here. Okay, so after you have registered a domain name with Route 53, you don't need to create a public hosted zone as when you register a domain name with, uh, with us, uh, we create the hosted zone for you automatically. So just to call out and uh, make things clear here, if you're using a third-party registrar, you do need to manually create the public hosted zone uh, in Route 53. Um, 
So you then create records in a public hosted zone to specify how you want to create traffic for the domain. So for example, you might create a, a record to route traffic for say, our domain, awstechcheck.com to maybe a CloudFront distribution or another content delivery network or to a web server or to another endpoint, um, but that, more on that shortly. So how am I doing here, Shane? Am I, uh, am I likely to be employed? Mm, I'll let you continue so far. You're doing okay. Uh, let, me, let me keep going. So, so how does one browse and find newly registered domains? Well, it may seem like magic, but it isn't. Um, let's, let's, let's walk this through for um, awstechcheck.com. So a DNS is really uh, hierarchical in nature, and it's often called a namespace, which is uh, pretty much a, it's a tree structure or, or an inverted tree structure, if you like. Uh, the DNS tree has a single domain at the top of the structure called a root domain. So below the root domain are top-level domains that divide into DNS hierarchies into things such as um, .com, .net, or even country-specific domains like .au uh, or whatever country you happen to live in. And those are actually uh, um, defined um, quite uh, they follow the actual uh, global convention there uh, for country codes, two-letter codes. Um, below the top-level domains, the domain name space is further divided into subdomains um, representing individual organizations, as in the case with AWS TechChat. So without driving too much into how the INA works or the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority actually works, um, you will need to do the delegation to your own authoritative name service for um, domains to be uh, on Route 53. So when you register a domain with Route 53, this is done for you automatically. So fundamentally, in other words, what this all means is that the IP addresses of your name service are key here uh, for, the IP, for the name actual resolution and um, final traversal once you're trying to resolve um, awstechcheck.com. Mm. And look, we are all for choice here at AWS, and we realize you know, everything doesn't revolve around the AWS cloud. So if you're using a domain registrar external to AWS, you can extract the name server values from the NS records within your public hosted zone, and then delegate this at your domain registrar. And a tip here is, as the DNS namespace starts with a period and works from right to left, it is imperative when listing name servers at DNS registrars that you enter that trailing period. So for some domain registrars, maybe they'll automatically fill this in, but some don't. So, you know, really important. And so when you enter in those NS records, when you're registering a domain name and delegating it, that you enter in that trailing period. So Pete, I'm pretty impressed with your description here. We may have to talk regards to giving you a role. Hey, I'll, I'll be happy sweeping the floors in our data centers. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we will, or maybe we can arrange that. Well, funny, so, funny enough, we, we don't even know where they are. I mean, we, we, we often get asked, you know, can we have a tour of a data center? And uh, I couldn't tell you where they are. And I don't really want to know. Right? So um, that's one thing that we don't do. Part of me misses those days. You know, life was a lot simpler in there. I had my headphones on and yeah. Well, the trouble is, I think part of my ringing in my ears is because uh, I spent maybe, maybe too many days and weeks in data centers where I didn't have headphones on. So uh, or maybe it's a loud, loud techno music from my younger age. <laughs> okay, so look, domain registration done. You've locked away that stellar name. You probably want a website or at least a landing page. And there is more than one way to skin a cat here. So apologies to our non-Australian listeners. I simply mean, you know, there's more than one way to accomplish this. Hey, so no, this, yeah? this, this is one way of getting some Australian culture into the wheelchair. Maybe we should get like uh, the Australian government to fund us. It's a bit of lingo conversion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Aussie, Aussie, you know, um, Aussie way of life, um, you know, down under for the rest of the world via tech chat. Via tech chat. So look, off the top of my head, I can think of seven different ways to host a website on AWS. 
We're not going to cover all of them because, you know, that is a lot, but let's break it down into three key areas. So, you know, you may just want to start off by putting a landing page up, you know, coming soon or some brochure work. And the easiest way to do this is to use Amazon S3 static website hosting. And as the name implies, it's for static website hosting. And you can use this to host content that doesn't require server-side processing. So I'm talking static objects like HTML, JavaScript, CSS, etc. You know, anything that your browser can render without a server. So I was away in Seattle last week, Pete, talking about reducing one's surface attack area for a complex online website. And one of the key elements was S3 static hosting. And that's because there is no service to manage, patch, or keep secure. You know, it's a win on so many fronts, and it's perfect for SPA or single page apps architectures. It's really good, right? So and and it, one, thing, the one thing I've actually done also is um, you can have any file convention, uh, any naming convention you like, right? Um, so um, in, in the early days, um, I've even seen people posting and copying ASP.NET sites, and all they were doing is web copying um, the actual HTML, even though they had the uh, ASPX dot extensions um, into S3. Um, and you couldn't tell. It looked like a .NET website running on IS. But if you were to look at the actual header information, it, it, it wasn't, um, but it looked exactly like um, something else. It can do some really clever, cool stuff uh, with S3. Yeah, look, pretty simple to do. Upload your content to an S3 bucket, enable website hosting, ensure you've got a valid default document. So, you know, by default, that may be like default.html or index.htm. But as you just mentioned, Pete, you know, you can set your own. So it could be that default.aspx or whatever. Yes, but there are a few things you got to be aware of, right? Especially when there you're are. setting up S3 as a single page or, or multi-page hosting. Yeah, so look, I must point out here that this is only going to be an option if you are using Amazon Route 53 for your DNS zone. As to enable this magic, we use a special C name on the zone apex, which is not an option with you know regular DNS servers like Bind or Windows DNS. So that was a landing page use case. Maybe you know, you've moved on, you've grown up a bit. You're that SMB, that small, medium business, and you want to leverage a platform maybe like Joomla or WordPress. You know, these are incredibly popular. And as of January 2019, WordPress powers 29% of websites worldwide. Really? You know, who would have yeah, who would have thought? Whack it into your uh, favorite search engine here, Pete. That's an amazing statistic. That is huge. That's impressive. Yes. But I, I, I can see why. It's, uh, I mean, I've seen so many WordPress sites pop up all over the place, like for blogs and for small businesses. Um, and uh, because their skins are so readily available, you can customize it um, to your heart's content. Yeah, and that's it. You know, like I started out probably, probably at the start of this year helping uh, a close friend uh, runs a few mechanical workshops. You know, I went on to, uh, you know, in my, in my search engine, WordPress template mechanic, I can get something that's 95% there that meets the needs mm. for very little money and it is just so easy to get started. And the plugin community is so awesome too, right? I mean, yeah. um, there's stuff for stats, there's stuff for putting maps in, into uh, the actual websites, yeah. analytics, um, you know, a whole bunch of even database uh, front ends that you can actually plug into uh, um, WordPress. Yeah, very, very impressive. Mm -hmm. And look, people can get started in a very low friction manner by using Amazon LightSail. So LightSail is a VPS service, so all virtual private server. It's a great place to get started. And these days it's even better because it is able to evolve into something bigger and better. And look, and what's great about uh, LightSail is firstly, it's, it's an incredibly cost-effective way um, to actually get online, right? Because the, the plans that we have provide a really, um, you know, high performance, low cost approach uh, to getting started. You know, and when, when I talk about getting started, we're talking about three and a half 
dollars a month for a single core 20 gigabyte uh, hard drive 512 megs of ram and one terabyte of data transfer out right shane this is a uh, pretty impressive it's really you know that is the cost of a cup of coffee maybe even less depending on where you are located so you know wordpress if you want wordpress as an example it is simple it is really as simple as a few clicks um, you know, you can one, run that WordPress site for $3.50 per month. You can go within LightSail, select WordPress. Your VPS is going to launch within a few minutes, fully installed. And, you know, it's really, 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 really easy. Yes. And look, uh, my son's actually a big user of LightSail. Um, in fact, he's got a WordPress site. And it, I think it took us uh, just under 10 minutes to get the base site up and running. Um, and, uh, you know, what we just talked about before around setting things up with DNS. Uh, yep. We, we sat down and we both did it. Um, inside, you know, I think it was maybe an hour. Uh, we had him online with his own custom logins. We then got a, um, a mobile app, um, a mobile app um, on his iPad so he can actually do remote admin of his WordPress site. Uh, and, and if that wasn't enough, he also ended up running his Minecraft server on another, yeah. uh, on another light cell instance, which is um, pretty damn impressive. Mm, that's... Uh... That's amazing. We've got to get him a job here. And, well, and, and the other thing is, uh, maybe uh, he does like Amazon. But listen, um, the other cool thing is, if you're not really, um, you know, that tech savvy, then the nice thing about LightSail is, it's everything's driven by the web console. You know, if you want to log into your to your instance, uh, you know, it pops up another in, another browser with an SSH. Uh, connection in there, no need to worry about your PEMs and certificates. Uh, all that stuff is handled within the browser itself. So inside, in a, a click or two, you're actually inside your instance doing administration, um, doing configuration and getting things started. So uh, it really is a cost-effective but also super efficient way uh, of getting yourself up and up and running on the, on the internet um, for a couple of bucks a month. Yeah. And look, as you mentioned, not having to exactly, you know, schmod certificates and download private keys do it in the browser. Really cool. Mm. Okay. So you're getting a bit more serious now. You know, you may be leaning into the AWS ecosystem. You've grown out of your WordPress. You need to do some custom development. You may be wanting to leverage things like SNS and SQS, you know, our queuing and notifications platform, or maybe need complex load balancing options. So Pete, what options do customers have here? So, so now we're getting into the... Um you know, what most people will resonate with, with in AWS. Um, and that really is the EC2 family um, of uh, related services. So that's Elastic Compute Cloud we're talking about, right? Um, so this is for running web servers. You can run, you know, IES, Nginx, Apache. By the way, you can also run those on light cell instances, but you get a lot more flexibility um, by actually um, going and running more EC2. But you can also get even more involved and run things like ECS, so Elastic Container Service, or run Kubernetes, or even run Fargate, a whole raft of other different services which you can actually use to host your website. And I, mean, I haven't even mentioned serverless, right? There's a lot, whole bunch of different options. So I think if um, we were to cover all these in depth, we'd probably run out of time today. Um, but we're just talking... Um, about getting started here. So let's park that and go back to EC2 for a second. So the Amazon EC2 is often referred to pretty much as the core building block of um, all of the AWS services in many different ways. And there are also circular dependencies on many of the services because, uh, for example, things like workspaces also rely on EC2. Um, so it is kind of like the cornerstone of many of the things that we actually do. Um, it's part of the platform in a number of different ways, right? So this is um, virtual machines for those of you um, who's, you know, who's still thinking as such, but it's a virtual machine as a service, right? 
So EC2 is very, very mature. It's one of our oldest services and most robust and well-known, uh, well, truly battle-tested. Uh, and it has a large number of instances, Shane. It's uh, um, been around for, like I said, many, many years, over, well over a decade. Um, and it has different instance types to meet different kind of workload profiles um, depending on your needs. Mm. And look, Pete, I'm going to assume our listeners are pretty familiar, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But with over 120 different family and or class combinations, what type of instances are going to be good to host a website? Do I just get the biggest and baddest instance we have? You know, I hear my employer has plenty of money. You know, I've got a blank check here. <laughs> Great story. I wish I had a blank check. Um, look, let's park the cost component for a second, as I think that the real question I think you're trying to ask is uh, possibly is stateless or stateful, uh, which is, you know, the question around which actually helps you drive, you know, can you scale things out horizontally? And horizontally scaling uh, websites that are stateless makes it a lot easier because these are perfect candidates uh, for being able to use, um, you know, uh, lower cost instances that scale out uh, as your website traffic increases. So you could, in this case scenario, use the, say, the T-series instances in scale out as they are low cost, burstable, really general purpose instance types um, that give you a, you know, a baseline level of CP performance um, with the ability to burst, you know, burst up as the usage actually increases depending on um, user profiles. And the T3 instances are assigned for, you know, applications with, you know, moderate uh, CPU usage that experience temporary spikes in, in usage, which is exactly what workloads um, that run, what run web applications look like. Um, and because these are great for scaling out, they're, they're low cost, you can keep adding more and more instances behind a load balancer to actually give you that, um, you know, high level of processing and low latency for your web browsers. Which translates into the typical traits of a web server. So, you know, many script engines such as, you know, .NET or Java, they're going to compile once, you know, create that pre-compilation cache, and that's going to require a high amount of CPU initially. And then you're going to serve from a cache. So, you know, T3 instances, you know, these general purpose burstable instances are perfect here. But let's say your site is tracking state maybe in memory. So within the web service process, then you're going to be forced to use a larger instance and scale up as the traffic increases. And Cloud Economics 101 dictates that, you know, large instances are going to be more expensive than, say, four small instances that equal the same amount of resources. So there are ways around dealing with stateful applications. And the most common method is something called using sticky sessions, which may, and I say may, in air quotes, you know, help out here. So sticky sessions ensures that your load balancer will always send the same end user to the same EC2 instance. But this isn't ideal because, you know, devices like proxy servers may overload a specific instance. And whilst this may, you know, be a means to perform load balancing, it's mediocre really at best. Your aim should always be for scale-out architectures as there are a heap of good reasons to why you'd want to scale out from, you know, not having any single points of failures to cost reduction and usually, you know, better linear performance. If you need to store state, use a persistence layer, which may be something like DynamoDB, EFS, an RDS database, or an in-memory cache like Elastic Cache. That way, your EC2 instance is now cattle and not a pet. So, Pete, what is the weirdest named server that you've had to deal with? I'm not talking like a naming convention. I'm talking like a full-blown names like Fred. Don't tell me the server was called Pete01. No, not at all. But uh, if I cast my mind back to a few years ago, uh, maybe many years ago, back at university days, I used to be an admin and I um, 
had the two twins. Um, if you actually Google and uh, look for me and look for Monash, which was the university I was actually at doing my PhD, and um, there was one picture which I can't find anymore online, but uh, me, it was me in front of uh, there's a very large screen, and uh, that was one of the two twins, and they were both um, deck alphas, uh, almost called Beavis, and it was called Butthead. Um, they they were both DNS servers, and they were also doing uh, web hosting. Um, and there were also mail service, Shane. And uh, I remember one time getting a really interesting mail from somebody saying, um, I didn't think of the the uh, the butthead butthead um, um, you know domain uh, name of the server um, being. Don't you know, tell me it was in the SMTP header. It was. It was actually it was a fully qualified <laughs> domain name. So it was a uh, you know Pete at uh, you know butthead.monash or whatever it was back then. So it was it was quite funny. Um, uh, very yes. good. So yes, those those are the, those are the good old days. Good one. All right. So before we move on, at https://aws.amazon.com forward slash websites, we have a guide about web hosting. And, you know, like our discussion, it's actually split into three distinct areas covering much of what we covered today. I think maybe they copied us here, Pete. Maybe. maybe. All right. And look, lastly, enter in AWS web, web hosting tutorials into your favorite search engine, and you'll end up on a page that will hold your hand through setting up hosting for, you know, Apache, IS, as well as Beanstalk. Yeah, so guys, if you get asked at the next barbecue about some tips, uh, don't forget those links because they're very, very useful um, and may help your buddies and friends get started. Yeah. So Pete, are we forgetting something here on the DNS front? No, 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 no. Don't worry. I was going to um, get back to this. Um, and that's after you've created your website, you will need to specify your zone file, the zone apex for your A record. Now, this will allow um, awstexture.com, in an example, to resolve to the correct address. So for um, S3 static website hosting, for example, this will be a special CNAME alias. Um, it's actually a dropdown in the uh, Route 53 console. Um, otherwise, you'll have to specify elastic IPs for either light sale or EC2 instances uh, for your applications. Uh, or to um, your uh, ELB, your load balancer. DNS is often referred to as a glue of the internet, and I hope it's becoming really clear here. You know, it is incredibly important. So we're not finished with DNS just yet today, but I think we're finished talking about web hosting. Indeed. So let's pivot back to DNS um, front Pete here. You know, from time to time, people like to send emails, you know, and they issue us, you know, uh, hello, you know, capital H, capital A-L-O, you know, a bit of a dad joke. Um, you know, if you're familiar with telnetting into an SMTP server. So hello is usually the first SMTP command a client will send to a mail server. But before this connection gets initiated, one needs to know, you know, how to locate your mail server that's authoritative for your domain. And that is where MX records come into play. Is that where I say you had me at hello? You had me at hello. There we go. Champagne comedy. <laughs> so look, the uh, the MX record or the mail exchange record specifies the mail server um, that's responsible for actually accepting the email messages um, on behalf of the domain that you've got. So as in um, awstexture.com, um, as Shane alluded to, um, it's a special resource, special so rather a special record really within your zone, um, other than the fully qualified um, domain name for, you know, for your system. So it's possible to actually configure a number of MX records. Now this typically points to an array of mail servers for load balancing and redundancy. Um, you know, and in the early days, you know, people used to have mail servers go you know up and down all the time. Uh, so they they invented this multiple MX uh, model where mail servers would actually you know traverse and look for multiple MX records, and um, depending on um, which one was up, that's the one that would actually deliver your emails. Yeah. So look, the number or priority on the record dictates where email is going to be sent. So lowest number wins. So meaning the lowest number has the highest priority. 
So if you drop to a terminal uh, or a command prompt, depending on your system, you can deem the MX records for any domain name so via the NSLOOKUP command, set the type to MX and then hit enter in a domain name. And you might get a record like, um, you know, it might start with a 5 or a 10 or a 15, 20, etc. And then the fully qualified domain name. And that first, di those digits dictate the MX priority. So look, now we're aware of the mechanics behind MX records. What does AWS have on offer here, Pete, to you know, handle email? Well, uh, using the universal building block of EC2 that I mentioned before, um, you can create your own SMTP server on EC2. Now, this could be um, as complex as a Microsoft Exchange uh, all the way through to a POSIX mail server. Um, but not everyone is up to speed running their own SMTP mail servers. In fact, I used to run a, uh, an Exchange server under my desk for, for, for quite a number of years. And uh, that took a lot of cycles, right? Um, but fundamentally, setting you know reverse DNS record lookups and many other admin tasks can be quite onerous. So mail is one of those um, servers that can have a um, a bit of a learning curve as well to get started because there's a lot of jargon, a lot of terminology you have to get across. So uh, it can actually do your head in a little bit. Yeah, totally. And look, and it can seem a bit of a black box until you get a, you know, your head around MX records, MTAs or mail transfer agents, SMTP daemons, real-time block lists. Geez, they have a, uh, you know, mm -hmm. IPs being blocked on spam on um, spam cop or spam house, etc. You know, not everyone's an expert here, and whilst people may tolerate a disruption to a website. Having email offline and messages vanishing into you know that black hole isn't going to be acceptable in most places. So, Pete, what do we have on offer to reduce that learning curve? Yes, well, to help a lot of people not to have to learn that, and again, take away that heavy lifting, we have Amazon Workmail now, which is our managed um, business email and also calendaring service um, with support for existing applications and mobile email clients. Um, it's an email service that provides native iOS, Android email access via ActiveSync. Um, or supports almost any client application by using industry standard protocols like Internet Message Access Protocol, um, IMAP, uh, for receiving emails, uh, as well as SMTP for transfer of emails. So um, think of it as um, something that looks very similar. It's API compatible with uh, Microsoft Outlook. Um, so it's a very, very, you know, very powerful, uh, very, very simplistic. Um, and it also has a web interface as well. So if you don't have a mail client, you can log in via a web browser. Mm, and Pete, I believe you actually use Workmail for your own domain. Yes, I do. Um, look, uh, it's, a, it's a modern email service, so it allows you to integrate a whole bunch of things uh, against your existing corporate directory. Um, look, if you don't have one, you can spin one up really quickly. Um, you know, you can do email journaling uh, to meet your compliance requirements. Um, and also, what's really cool about it is from a security perspective, you can control the keys that are being used to encrypt your data and the location in which your data is actually stored. You can also import users and mailboxes from Exchange 2010 and 2013 systems. Um, and the really cool thing about it at the end of the day is the price. It costs $4 per month per user. Forget this, 50 gigabytes of storage. So it's actually a lot cheaper than running an EC2 instance. And in fact, it's cheaper than probably running in a, a light cell instance. Yeah. And look, it's email. You really don't want this to be offline. So if you were going to run this on EC2, you'd probably have a minimum of two to three servers and with the cost of $4 per month, the break-even point, just from a cost perspective, assuming you know your time is free for managing these, is going to be many hundreds of users. So, Pete, given you're a user of Workmail, tell me about the MX Record side of things here. What do we need to do to get started? So it's pretty straightforward, Shane. Um, with Workmail, you just need to set your MX Record to the value provided by Workmail setup, and that's it. Cool. All right. So, look, 
Worth pointing out, um, we spoke about MTAs. So typically, you know, you may run an MTA sidecar, you know, if you're running this yourself, like Spam Assassin to scan emails for spam. You know, Workmail is going to scan all incoming and outgoing emails for spam, malware, viruses, etc. you know, to help protect customers from malicious email. We are really doing the heavy lifting here for, you know, for you. So Pete, it's now time to close the show. We'll be back for the final part of this series. Today, we gave you a taste of the core parts around starting out in AWS and web hosting in general, hopefully cementing in some core technology principles. We spoke about domain registration and DNS in general with Amazon Route 53, an awesome, awesome DNS service. Yes, and look, and we spoke about hosting and touched on a, a variety of options um, you have in AWS, uh, and then transition to the email, um, and also you know um, help people better understand how they could actually you know not run their own mail server but actually leverage ours, which is Amazon Workmail. Yeah, and look, Sydney is fast approaching Sydney Summit. That is. So we hope to hear and see listeners at Summit. We'll be back in the coming two to three weeks to build on this foundation we laid today. And, you know, as always, we love to hear feedback. So please contact us on AWS Tech Chat, that's one word, at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building. And see you at the Sydney Summit. Bye for now. Ciao. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.